I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Namaste and welcome to our podcast. Ek Women recognizes that we, as South Asian women, are poised at an interesting crossroad where diversity is the new mantra. Our aim is to bring you stories of women who have found success in a diverse range of conventional and unconventional careers. If we look back at ancient times, women were caregivers and kept the home fires burning. They used their knowledge of spices to ensure their families were well-fed and protected from diseases. Over the years, as food behavior changes, we've begun losing the ancient art of healing. Our guest today wants to revive the art of using spices for their scientific benefit and still produce flavorful food. Puna born, Brooklyn-based, Kanchan Koya founded Spice Spice Baby to inspire families to use spices and still feed their children delicious food. In true Desi coincidence, it turns out I actually know her dad in Pune. There is some truth to the notion of one degree of separation. Kanchan spent almost a decade studying molecular biology, first as an undergraduate at the University of Austin in Texas, and then doing her doctorate at Harvard Medical School. She's also a certified healing coach from the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. She's a columnist at the Huffington Post, writing about family nutrition and health. Her website has delicious recipes, nutrition tips, and information about spices to inspire healthy living. Her Insta posts make my mouth water. She makes cooking seem so effortless. Let's hear the journey of this bubbly mother of two that brought her to this intersection between food and medicine. Hi, Kanchan. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, Monica. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. How did growing up in Pune trigger your love for molecular biology? That's such a great question, and it highlights the importance of teachers. I was at Saint Joseph's High School in Pashan, Pune, and I had a really remarkable biology teacher in eighth grade. I still remember the moment where she was talking about the structure of DNA and how these two strands kind of interwoven together really make up the blueprint of who we are. In that moment, I knew that I was so fascinated by this aspect of biology, by this idea of a molecular blueprint to explain who we are, our traits, everything we do. And I decided I was going to study molecular biology. And it was in that moment, inspired by that teacher and the way she conveyed that information, where those seeds were sown. My love for it continues even today. So nothing to do with mom's cooking and all to do with actual science. Yes, absolutely. How were those early days in Texas? It must have been quite a culture shock. Any memorable incident from that period about adjusting and settling in? It was a culture shock to say the least. I came from Pune, which 
was considered a small city in India, but it still had five to seven million people. So small for Indian standards, but very large. And from that, I came to Texas, which is quite different. Austin is more diverse than the rest of Texas. So I don't think it was as severe a culture shock as if I had gone to some other part of Texas, but it was still America. I had never been to North America before. I was soaking it all in, trying to be very curious, very open-minded, very exploratory, but I was also very scared. I was trying my hardest to fit in as an 18-year-old, dressing the part, trying to look as American as possible, trying to make new friends, trying to negotiate my way, but really being very cognizant that I didn't want to get pigeonholed as this Indian international student. There were a lot of Indian students at University of Texas and they all banded together, which makes a lot of sense. But I really wanted to expand beyond just my Indian roots and expose myself to people from all around the world. So the most significant memories for me are really wanting to fit in beyond just being Indian, wanting to explore friendships with people from all over American, international and Indian. It was an uncomfortable adjustment, I would say. And I really kind of white knuckled my way through it. But it was hard at times. I felt like I didn't belong to any tribe or any group. But I was determined to kind of find my own footing. And slowly, patiently, I think I have done. Um, But it was definitely uncomfortable at first. What was uncomfortable about it? Any particular incident? When you come from India... The first thing I noted is there's a lot of Indians in Texas and they're born and raised here. They're like second generation Indians. Their parents may have come over in the 1960s. I realized that I don't have as much in common with them as you would think you would with people who have Indian roots. I do have a very vivid memory of wanting to be really friendly with everyone and sitting down in the cafeteria in my dorm. I think I must have been in my freshman year with this big group of Indian Americans I just sort of said, you know, I'll just go and sit down and introduce myself. And I did. They were extremely cold and unwelcoming. And I don't mean to offend any of them. They're all lovely people. But I think they were a little bit like, who is she? We don't know who she is. And they got up and left and went to a different table. I was 18. I was homesick. I was there by myself. And I was really trying to be bold and open. That was really painful and uncomfortable. I went on to become very close friends with some Indian Americans. I think it just goes to show that the relationship between Indians fresh off the boat, as we were called, and Indian Americans can be quite complex. It's not as simple as, oh, we are all Indian and we have Indian roots. Indian Americans have had a very different experience and maybe don't feel like they can relate as much to the fresh off the boat Indian and vice versa. Of course, now all those boundaries have kind of faded and I have friends from everywhere. I've been here so long that it doesn't even matter. But back then, I was kind of flabbergasted at their reaction and very confused by it all. It definitely stuck with me as an uncomfortable moment in my transition. I felt that way when I first came here, not with family, but with other Indians. They were kind of wary about me because I was fresh off the boat from India. You would consider yourself an Indian American now. How do you feel it's changed since that time? I experience it much less now. My sense of self has evolved so much. I really see myself as someone with a breadth of international experience. I don't necessarily see myself as Indian American the way an Indian American born here might. I've now been here for 20 some years. Maybe it's just age. I'm married 
an American who is half Indian, who never considered himself Indian American. Whenever I asked him where he's from, he would say, I'm from California. I was like, but you look Indian. He's like, well, my dad's Indian, but my mom is English. And so I don't know if it's that combination of having married someone who has Indian roots, but is very much his own person and doesn't really identify with any particular identity. I really see myself as this blend of someone from India with an international experience. And I feel like I can connect now with lots of different people. I still don't feel like I fit into that box though of an Indian American. And how does it work when you go back to India to visit your family and friends? Do they put you into a box as an Indian American? When I go to India, I feel like I'm back in India. I have this ability to shape shift a little bit and take on all these different avatars. When I go to India, my accent changes. I take on the mannerisms of being more Indian. Maybe it's empathy neurons in my brain. Used to find that bothersome. Like, oh, who am I really? Like, why am I changing my accent? I think it's just a sign that I'm adaptable, that I have empathy, that I want to connect with the people around me. And if that means sounding a little different or gesticulating a little differently, that just makes me feel more connected to them. So I've started to see it more of a strength than like a weirdness or a quirk. Indians in India definitely see me as Indian, but also not really like an NRI, the non-resident Indian label. Were you pleased with your decision to come to Texas for your molecular biology course? I was really upset, actually, when I first came to Texas because I had been accepted to Brown University, which is Ivy League, but it was extremely expensive. And my parents at the time couldn't afford to pay whatever tuition. Texas was cheaper. Plus, my Masi, my mom's sister, lived in Houston. So my parents, who had already been quite brave in letting me leave India. They didn't really want me to leave. I was very young and they thought it was extremely scary for me to just wander off into another country. They said, you'll go to Texas and you'll be two hours away from your aunt. So we have someone there who can keep an eye on you. You have a support system. In hindsight, as much as I was upset that I didn't go to Ivy League Brown, Texas was amazing. It taught me resourcefulness. The word in India we use is jugad, right? There's 50,000 kids at the University of Texas. It's an amazing school with amazing faculty and resources, but you have to find the resources. You have to fight for them. You have to seek them out. In terms of a life lesson, it was a really valuable place for me to develop those skills of seeking out resources and creating my path based on what's available to me rather than being spoon-fed a path. I have no regrets now that I think about it. I came here at 18 to study too. And my parents were also very concerned about letting a young girl go. So I lived with my mama, mommy, not even two hours away. I lived with them and went to university for my first two years. Just having family around, helping you with that initial adjustment. It helped pave my entry. So it was not as scary. Absolutely. I remember going home to my Masi's house for weekends. My mom would come and visit and stay there so I could see her. It was definitely a gentler transition. I don't fault my parents for taking that into consideration when deciding where I could go. Becoming a doctor is the number one fantasy of Indian parents. Did your parents wish that for you too? Is that why you picked Harvard Medical School? When I decided I liked molecular biology at age 13, the first thing that I thought I would do was go into medicine. Because in India, if you like biology, you do medicine. If you like math, you do engineering. Those are pretty much the two options. There was really no research-based track around molecular biology. I think there was one institute at the time in 1997 in India that offered molecular biology and kind of a research-focused path. 
My parents actually dissuaded me from going to medical school. I had an aunt who was a doctor. She had two daughters. She had given up so much and struggled so much finding balance between work and family. She was like, think really hard. Think twice before you commit to the path of medicine, especially because you love science and you love biology and you don't have to conflate the two. Well, my parents were conventional and they wanted me to be close to my aunt, but they really let me fly in terms of my career choices and my academic choices. So it was all me when it came to Harvard Medical School, PhD. It was just some sort of inner fire that took me there. It wasn't any kind of pressure to do medicine. What about molecular biology did you decide you're going to take and run with? I kept taking one step after the next. I did all the coursework for molecular biology and I loved it. So there was constant reinforcement that I had made the right choice, at least in terms of love of the subject that I was studying. I was continually fascinated by it. And to this day, just find biology, the human body at a molecular and macro level so fascinating. That has always been true for me. And I let that be kind of the guiding light and a sign that I was on the right path. I finished my undergrad and I had this very strong intuition that I needed to be in New York City. I have no idea why. I don't know if it's because I came from India and I love cities and I grew up in a big city and I just was like, I have to go to New York City. So I started researching ways in which I could get to New York. I had done some research as an undergrad at the University of Virginia And it turned out that my professor at Virginia had a contact with a professor at NYU at the medical school. And so I just kind of connected all these dots, found my way to this lab at NYU that was studying HIV and just followed my intuition, ended up in New York City for a summer research internship at this lab at NYU. My professor at NYU was the one who told me, you know what, stay in my lab for a year, do research and then go to grad school. Whether or not you want to do academics and you want to become a professor, do a PhD. You love biology enough, just do the PhD and then see what happens. That was great advice because I was thinking, what would I do next? Should I go do biotech? There were these two-year courses that I could have done, but I just followed his advice, stayed at NYU as a research assistant and applied to grad school and then ended up getting into Harvard. And I guess the rest is history. How long did it take for you to get your PhD? Six long years. (laughs) You spend a long time acquiring your academic qualifications. Was there any pressure on you to marry and settle down? Oh, gosh, no. That's another area where my parents have been very unconventional. When I was a kid, my mom used to tell me, and I remember this sentence over and over again, every donkey gets married. Don't make that a focus in your life. I think it was a little bit her own story. She was a really, really smart student extremely bright, extremely interested in academics. And she gave up her career to get married because she got married in the 70s when you didn't really have this option not to get married because you were focusing on your career as an English literature professor. That was her thing. She didn't want me to have to make that trade-off. She would tell me since I was 10, yes, get married if you want to, but don't make it the focus of your life. Everybody gets married. It's not a big deal. I had met my now husband right before I started grad school. So we had a six-year-long distance relationship. That was really interesting and challenging. But yeah, luckily, no pressure for matrimony from my parents. And do you have any siblings? I have an older brother. You were both allowed to do what you wanted to do in life. 
I think my brother definitely was pushed in the engineering direction because he was really bright at math. My dad's an engineer and my dad just figured that would be a fruitful path for him. So my brother actually jokingly says I was given more freedom than he was. And maybe this is true for lots of Indian families where the boy, especially an older son, is definitely molded a little bit more than, say, a younger daughter who might be molded for marriage. I don't know. I lucked out in that I was given a lot of freedom and flexibility. So I'm very grateful to my parents if they're listening. (laughs) (laughs) And they will. Was there a light bulb moment when you realized that you're not going to return to India and you're going to continue living in the U.S.? I had that moment when my relationship with Sharif, my husband, became serious. had this sense that, okay, I think I'm going to end up being with this guy and live in the U.S. And I'm okay with that. I crossed that threshold point of wanting to return to India. I came of age in the United States and I found myself and really discovered a lot about myself as an adult here. And it just felt like home in a way, but not entirely because I still had family in India. And when I went to India, I also felt at home. I just decided I'm going to be that person that feels at home in two very different places, but I will end up staying in the United States. Do you see how you have changed differently as a result of being in the United States as compared to what your girlfriends have become living in India? For sure. I have girlfriends in India who have forged very different paths. I have girlfriends who got married young, had children young, and definitely followed that more conventional matrimony in your 20s, kids in your late 20s path. And my life couldn't be more different than theirs, right? But then I also have girlfriends who potentially at the cusp of coming of age in the 2000s, for example, are still single at 40 and just haven't settled down in that conventional way, have really focused on their career. India changed a lot when I left in the 90s. And there are definitely examples of what we consider a more traditional story. And then there are examples in my own friend circle of people who have really defied convention and rejected it and stayed true to what they love. I think the difference is they still get a hard time about it in India. They're still harassed. There's a lot of implications like, why are you still single? When are you getting married? There's attempts to set them up. And they've had to fight a bolder fight to stay authentic and true to what they believe is a more fulfilling life for them, which may not be so traditional. Whereas for me, I don't have to explain anything to anyone. That's the beauty of America. You can just make your own path especially because I'm not entrenched in any kind of Indian American or Indian circle in America. I feel like I never had to explain myself to anyone. I felt really free in that sense. How did your choreograph take off? What did you do? And how did you finally land at starting your business? I finished my PhD and I knew halfway through that I wasn't cut out for a career in academia. A lot of people do their PhD, they then go on to do postdoctoral training, and then they might become a professor or a research scientist or both. I just knew that wasn't for me. I was really interested in people. I was really interested in interdisciplinary things, things that combined seemingly unconnected disciplines. Even in grad school, I became president of the biotechnology club, which tries to bridge the gap between academia and industry. So the first inclination I had was to move in the direction of industry, take all this academic knowledge I had acquired and apply it to some kind of real world problems. I started a biotech company, which sounds crazy, but 
I was very interested in entrepreneurship and my dad was very encouraging. Myself and another fellow grad student who was a friend started a biotech company trying to commercialize early stage research into pharmaceuticals. It was an incredible learning experience, but we hit some pretty severe roadblocks that maybe weren't so obvious, but we could sense them, which is we were women of color in our 30s in a white male dominated industry in America. So biotech here is white male, middle-aged, white hair. It's kind of mandatory. The few women who have been successful definitely don't look like us. They're older. So we just started to feel like we were never really being taken seriously. But we would walk into these meetings with professors. We had capital to bring to the table. We obviously were smart enough to understand the science. We had connections with industry. We were building this whole framework to commercialize these early stage technologies But we could just sense they were like, yeah, how are they going to get it done? I still remember at this time I was now married and I was pregnant with my first child and walking into one of these commercialization meetings with my co-founder, who was also an Indian woman, also pregnant, both of us pregnant, trying to make a case that we were the A team that was going to help commercialize this technology out of a world-renowned university. I could just see in the eyes of the professors this absolute disbelief that this was ever going to happen. You know, I I think I learned a lot, but maybe it was these roadblocks or maybe my heart really wasn't in it. Six months after my son was born, we relocated to Hong Kong for a four-year expat assignment for my husband's work. And it was in Hong Kong as a new mother that I really reinvented myself. I was on a run and I asked myself the question, what would you do if no one cared what your resume looked like? If no one cared what you did with your resume and what you did with your degree, Because biotech made a lot of sense for me. It was like, yeah, she went to Harvard. She has a PhD. Of course, she would do biotech. What a noble path to follow. Academia would have made a lot of sense to me. But the thing that came up for me on that run was I want to do something at the intersection of food, cooking, and health. I've been a foodie my whole life. I love to cook. And now I'm a mother and I'm thinking so consciously about what to feed my son. What if I can combine all those things and help people raise healthy children? be healthy themselves while leveraging the power of science, but also really delicious food. I decided to start my blog. I called it a passion project slash hobby at the time because I wasn't brave enough to commit to it as a career path. I thought it would look foolish to do that after a PhD at Harvard. So I kind of was like, yeah, yeah, I'm just taking some time off. I'm a new mom. I'm going to start this blog. We'll see where it goes. And it kept going. And now it's what I do. I realized that I've always had an interdisciplinary strength. I'm really good at connecting the seemingly unconnected and bringing them together and creating something new. And I think in Spice Spice Baby as this platform to help people not just understand the power of spices and science and health, but also put it into practice in your kitchen in delicious, vibrant ways. It's almost like I have one foot in this avatar of a scientist and one foot in this avatar of a chef. That's really what feels true to me. And it's taken a while for me to get there and stand in my power and own it and not be embarrassed that this is the path I decided to walk. But I'm glad I finally arrived. What's your take on Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Conventional medicine versus this natural spice-based approach. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. I think conventional medicine has a really powerful place. I see it as powerful to treat disease when things have already happened when the balance has already moved in the wrong direction and now disease is here, I think conventional medicine is great at rooting it out, potentially excising it out surgically, really dealing with the problem once it's there. When it comes to prevention, which is probably where we should be focusing more of our effort, food is medicine, food is preventative medicine, lifestyle is preventative medicine. That's where I feel like my mission, my job, my passion lies is to help people really focus on that prevention piece in joyful, delicious ways so that the need for conventional medicine is reduced. No, that's so fascinating. I don't enjoy cooking as much. I do cook because when you live here, you have to cook if you want to feed yourself. When I look at my aunts and my mother and grandmother, they used to cook in a particular way. You mix this with this. And when you cook this, you need to cook this because it balances out and you need your vitamin C. So tomato goes in this, but not in this. And I just feel sometimes that I'm going to lose out on all this. It comes so naturally to them because they've just grown up that way and I don't know it. Do you ever go back to Hindu scriptures, to Ayurveda to figure out how you're going to use your spices? Ayurveda has been a very influencing field of medicine in my work. I'm not a trained Ayurvedic specialist by any means, but I've read Ayurvedic texts voraciously. I see an Ayurvedic practitioner here in New York, and she honestly, not to sound like I'm exaggerating, changed my life. I was doing a lot of things that I knew were good for me from a conventional science perspective, all the superfoods, all the trends, all the science-based kind of intervention, the green juices, this, that. Ayurveda is so powerful because it takes into account our bio-individuality, the fact that we're all unique and there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. I really dive into Ayurveda when thinking about my own health and my own bio-individual nature and what works for me versus everybody else. And exactly that ancient wisdom that you talked about. I grew up in a household like most Indian households where some form of Ayurveda is definitely loosely practiced. No one in my family was an Ayurvedic practitioner, but we all knew to make haldi dud when any kind of respiratory infection would strike. I would dread it because the haldi dud in India is not like this watered down latte you get here. It's like intense amounts of haldi. And if you're seven years old, it's a little much. I grew up knowing that cumin in khichdi was really beneficial if you had an upset stomach. Ginger was great, turmeric, all this kind of innate wisdom about spices and their benefits. I find it fascinating that our ancestors had that intuition to understand the benefits of these ingredients and how to combine them. I go to Ayurveda for where I feel like modern science hasn't quite caught up yet with the ancient wisdom. 
and I try to combine the two. In your opinion, and they don't have to be Indian spices, but which are the three most important spices everybody should have in their kitchen and why? I get asked this question all the time and it's kind of like asking to pick your three favorite children out of like 45. (laughs) (laughs) I pick the three that I will pick because I feel like they are very versatile in a global kitchen. Most of my audience, even if they are Indian, now live in all sorts of parts of the world and cook global food. Not everyone is cooking Indian food every day. If you're looking to cook globally inspired food, maybe Indian once in a while, and you want convenience and versatility out of your spice cabinet, you don't want the one spice that only works in this one dish. I always say turmeric as number one. It deserves all the love and all the admiration that it gets. The science is growing around its benefits. It's so versatile. I can't think of a single thing that you can't put it in. I can put it into desserts. I can put it into sweet things, savory things, spicy things, baked goods. It's like my go-to spice. So turmeric is a must-have. Combine it with black pepper for more optimal benefits. I'm not going to say pepper because I'm assuming every kitchen has salt and pepper. The remaining two spices, I would say some form of red chili powder slash paprika. I put them in the same family because not everybody wants spicy chili powder. If you don't like spicy, you can go with sweet paprika This class of spices has some very powerful anti-inflammatory benefits. And again, it's really, really versatile. You can put it in a range of different kinds of foods. And then the third would probably be cinnamon. Again, we think of cinnamon as the holiday spice, Christmas, cookies, but you can use it in so many savory dishes. It's part of Indian garam masala. It's really, really amazing for blood sugar balance Metabolic dysfunction and blood sugar imbalance is one of our major public health crises at the moment. So I think anything we can do to bring blood sugar back into balance is really powerful. And cinnamon can be really, really helpful in that regard and also very versatile. Those would be my three must-haves, but I could go on and on. Have you had people who followed your advice on eating certain foods and certain spices if they've had any kind of health issue and then they've been okay? Any stories to share? I get messages quite often on social media from followers who say they have improved their gut health. That's the number one thing people notice. You increase the amount of plant-based foods in your diet and really start to add these anti-inflammatory spices like turmeric, ginger, paprika, cumin, coriander, fennel. You'll start feeling better from a gut health perspective in days. And so I think the most common feedback I get is people feel like they're rebalancing their microbiome, their gut health. And it makes me really happy to hear that because Ayurveda said 5,000 years ago that all disease begins in the gut. And now we know that gut health and microbiome health is so linked to every aspect of our health. If we want to go to root causes of disease, we have to tackle gut health. And so if I'm helping people feel better in terms of their gut health through spices and food as medicine, I really feel like I'm doing my job and it makes me really happy to hear those stories. When did you know that you've hit on this winning idea? What does success mean to you? (laughs) I guess I knew that my passion project and hobby was no longer a passion project and hobby when I decided to write my cookbook and actually sell it and create a business. And when that cookbook was self-published, but was featured on the Today Show as the first ever self-published cookbook. 
that opened up a bunch of doors in terms of my partnership with BuzzFeed, the media brand and their food arm Tasty. You know, I was like, okay, this is it. This message is resonating with people, with thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people. This is what I'm here to do. I love it. The notion of success has changed a lot. It used to be about excellence, being the best in your field. A little bit around money and fame, even though I don't like to admit that, but it was like this idea that if you focus on the right thing, you do really well, you're one of the best in your field, you prove that you're being successful because you're monetarily successful and you're well known, that's success. But my notion of success is changing in real time now as I've entered my 40s. I think for me now, it's about this concept in Japanese culture of ikigai. If I can find my ikigai, which is basically, and let me see if I can get this right. It's the point where what I love to do intersects with what I'm good at, which I think you can become good at. I may not be inherently good at cooking, but I can learn and become a better cook. What I love to do, which is connect science and food and health and help people, becomes what I'm good at and I'm continually getting better at it. It intersects with what the world needs, intersects with what I can get paid for. I found my ikigai. I'm helping people, but I'm also doing what I'm good at. I'm also doing what I'm loving and I'm also able to get paid for it so I can feel like I can live an independent life. That has become important to me. And again, I don't have to get paid millions of dollars, just enough to where I feel like I can sustain myself in this world as a woman. If all those things intersect, I'm successful and I can say that I'm there now. It's not about being famous. It's not about having a huge bank account. It's about feeling inspired, helping people, and just really feeling like there's room for growth and continually improving myself in my field. So there's softer measures of success. I also think success is downtime. It's balance. I know that word gets thrown around a lot, but success is also focusing on relationships in your life. Work alone is not the path to a successful, meaningful life. Work is one component of it. And that's something I'm also learning because I've been nurtured to be very type A. (laughs) And I don't think type A is necessarily the only way to a meaningful life or the way to a meaningful life. You're raising a family. You have two young children. You're pursuing a successful career. You're a major Instagram influencer. How do you juggle all these different hats and balance it out? Is there any sense of guilt if you neglect one or the other? Yes, I'm almost constantly guilty and constantly frustrated with my inability to juggle it all. So that's the truth. (laughs) I have a very strong inner critic that is never quite pleased with whatever I'm doing. The big first step has been to recognize that inner critic. A lot of us have it. We have something called a negativity bias, which probably served us well in ancestral times when we were surrounded by threats. But now we need to check that voice. I realized I needed some support, so I sought out a therapist. I had a lot of stigma around therapy because I thought you have to be literally losing your mind to find a therapist. But now having someone objective to speak with on a weekly or biweekly or monthly basis, just to understand that sometimes there's this deep conditioning, this deep wiring and bringing awareness to it and kindness towards ourselves is really, really key. How do I juggle it all? I don't do a very good job, but what I'm learning to do is being kind to myself and realize that I am wearing a lot of hats and it's difficult. And sometimes it's a mess 
we have these ideas that life has to look really pretty and perfect. At least I did. I was constantly frustrated with how messy it was. But now I'm learning to see messiness as beauty and really embrace it. It's not easy. I have strong muscle memory to try to fix the mess. <laughs> but, you know, between motherhood and entrepreneurship and time for myself and trying to stay connected to my friends and leisure and new projects, it's very messy. And it doesn't look at all like it does on Instagram. So <laughs> my big mission is to just, like I said, lean into the mess, see beauty in it, and just embrace the imperfections and focus on that icky guy of all these components coming together for me in a messy, beautiful way. Have you ever felt hampered being a South Asian woman? You felt that way with the biotech business, but has it ever impacted you in your current career? Do you even have non-Indians following you? I think being South Asian and doing something like Spice Spice Baby has actually been, in a sense, a perfect fit. Like, oh, of course, she's Indian. She has a science background. She likes food. It's almost like more of a strength, whereas in biotech, it was more of a liability. That said, I haven't ever experienced overt discrimination that I can recall in my current field as a South Asian woman. But I will say this. I feel like sometimes we Indians can be least supportive of other Indians. I have a huge number of non-Indian followers on social media because of my partnership with BuzzFeed, which has a very huge international audience. I have a lot of Americans that follow me who are interested in learning about spices, health, but I also have an Indian following. And sometimes the most significant criticism, not always constructive, comes from my Indian followers. They feel like I have to fit a certain mold, maybe being South Asian, being Indian, I have to cook Indian recipes a certain way. If I deviate from tradition, God forbid, I decided to put this seed and this tarka and this recipe. So I think sometimes we can be quite tolerant of our own people to all Indians listening. And maybe I do the same, but I try to watch myself. Just because I'm from South Asia and because I'm Indian doesn't mean I will always cook every Indian recipe in a traditional way. I like to put my own spin on it. I like to bring in science to inform the ingredients that I'm going to use in it. I used to feel like I had to defend myself. I don't anymore. That's just me wisening up. I'm not going to please everyone. So ironically, being South Asian has helped me with my non-Indian audience and maybe hindered me with my Indian audience because they feel like I'm not fitting into a box. <laughs> I can't please everyone. You're also that South Asian woman who got featured on the Today Show and who has partnership with BuzzFeed. How did that come about? BuzzFeed was literally a cold email that I got that I thought was spam. I was on social media, I had about 5,000 followers, decent following, nothing crazy, but I was really active and I was sharing a lot of content. One of the BuzzFeed casting scouts found me through Instagram. I have no idea how. I decided to have the conversation and they auditioned me for this talent program. And then the Today Show happened because when I self-published my cookbook, I decided to hire a publicist, a PR agent, she pitched me to the Today Show. She said, even though I was a new home cook on the scene, I'd never done a cookbook before. My story was really unique because of this interdisciplinary approach, because I had this Harvard PhD that then decided to take myself into the kitchen. Jill Browning, amazing publicist, lovely woman, got me on the Today Show. <laughs> 
How was it being on the Today Show? Oh my gosh, total out of body experience, very surreal, just very memorable. I was just like, wow, here I am telling the world about spices. This is how life works. <laughs> very grateful because that really opened a lot of doors for me. Have you had pushback from other chefs who feel like why are you coming into our territory? You know, interestingly, not really from other chefs. I think if I've had pushback, it's my own inner critic saying you're an imposter. You didn't go to culinary school. You're not a trained chef. What are you doing here on this cooking show? What are you doing here writing a cookbook? I wonder if that's really the biggest hindrance many of us face, a projection of our own inner insecurities, messaging that we've internalized. I really feel like that's been my biggest battle more than any kind of external pushback. To flip the question around, do you have any tie-ups with other Indian chefs over here and do you do things together? I'm constantly open to collaborations. I've done some really cool social media collaborations with Indian entrepreneurs, chefs. I love showcasing products by Indian entrepreneurs that are innovative and really can impact people's lives. I'm a huge fan of a spice company called Diaspora Co., which sources single-origin spices from India. Sana is the founder and she's amazing. There's a business here on Smith Street called Malai Ice Cream, which takes the concept of kulfi, Indian traditional ice cream, and has created these incredible innovative flavors around them. I've talked about Malai on social media before. I'm always open, looking, love supporting other Indian content creators, chefs, food people, health people. I think the more we can come together, the more impact we can have, the more we can change the dialogue, the more we can help people and elevate ourselves. Do you involve your family in your work? My kids are in a lot of my content. They were a huge inspiring force in my cookbook. My husband is, he will say the brains behind all my recipes. <laughs> He's the true foodie in the relationship and always giving me amazing ideas. So yeah, they're either involved by being on camera or very influential behind the scenes. It's definitely a team effort <laughs> in the Koya kitchen. Can you give us a very quick put together recipe after a long day, you come home and you need to cook something? Whenever I've had a long day and I want to cook something, I'm usually making some sort of curry. It sounds so cliched, but I just want the comfort and coziness of those spices. I would saute onion, ginger, garlic in oil. I would add turmeric, cumin, coriander, and chili, and then add some crushed tomatoes, coconut milk, and then whatever you want, chickpeas, shrimp, some vegetables, let it all melt together, finish with lime or tamarind and cilantro and eat it over quinoa or rice or with some flatbread and you're done. <laughs> oh, that sounds delicious. I'm getting hungry. <laughs> Many people say cooking is something they do to switch off from their jobs. What does Kanchan do for leisure? I still love to cook. I cook for work and I cook for pleasure. And the way I switch off is when I'm cooking to create content and I'm working. That's one kind of cooking and one kind of pleasure. And then I love to cook with no agenda. So a glass of wine in hand, some jazz in the background. I have a good hour to make something delicious for friends or family. I'm not going to share it on social media. I'm not making it for anyone. I'm just making it for people I love or myself. I still derive so much pleasure from cooking. It's kind of going back to that point I made early on about molecular biology. I continue to love 
science and be inspired by it. And I continue to love cooking and be inspired by it, whether or not I'm working. So I know I'm on the right path following those two passions. Anything else that you enjoy doing? I love being outdoors. I love running or walking. I'm a runner, but I also love brisk walks out in nature. I love yoga. So if I have 45 minutes, I will try to find a YouTube video or just do my own yoga flow. So really into movement, cooking. I love reading, love listening to podcasts or audiobooks, and sometimes just sitting on the couch with my kids, which my old self, which was very type A and very focused on to-do list, would have said, that's not really a hobby. But what if it is? What if cuddling your kids and sitting on the couch doing nothing is a thing to do? And to really do it with intention. How often do you get back to India? I like to go back once a year and take my kids back. It's really important to me that they stay connected to their roots. Are you one of those parents who speaks Hindi with the kids so that they learn that language also? I tried really hard with my son. I was a very diligent Indian mom doing it. And then as soon as he started speaking back to me in English, I just gave up. And with my daughter, I just haven't. So, nope, I'm not that parent. (laughs) I have a rapid fire round for you, Kanchan. Are you ready? Okay, yeah. The best thing about being a mom? Cuddles. The one thing you miss about Pune? Street food, pav bhaji. Pune or New York? Oh my gosh, New York. (laughs) Don't hate me. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't. I would say the same. Your best quality? Compassion. For myself and others. (laughs) What's your one go-to dish? Curry. Your absolute favorite spice? Sumac. Favorite travel destination? Turkey. Cooking to you means? Loving myself and loving others. Your favorite children's book? Obsessed with this new series of books called Kalamata's Kitchen. Favorite food-based movie? Probably ratatouille. I wanted to ask you about sumac because you didn't mention it amongst those three spices that you think everyone needs to have in their kitchen. Can you elaborate a little bit on sumac? Yeah, it's the one spice I wish we had in the Indian spice box. I know Indians would say, oh, but we have amchur, which is similar. Sumac comes from the Middle East. It's a burgundy colored, beautiful spice that has kind of lemony notes like amchur, but also earthy, almost wine-like notes. It's incredibly complex. It elevates everything. Yeah, I should have put it in my top three. That's why I said top three is hard. It's incredibly antioxidant rich. I put it on all my salads. It's just super underappreciated. And I think more Indians should use it and people around the world. Awesome. Well, Kanchan, on behalf of my colleague, I want to thank you for taking the time today. And maybe I'll get inspired to add sumac to my repertoire and start cooking more mindfully now. To our listeners, you can follow us on our social media handle and akewoman.com. We're on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter. Thank you very much for listening and thank you for your time. Thank you, Monica.